This week on the podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. As I draw season two to a close, my very first guest on the podcast, Rowan Dredge, is joining me and the roles are reversed. This time, it's Rowan interviewing me. In this episode, we're having a conversation about the leadership gap. That gap that often sits between the executive leaders and people leaders causing all kinds of issues within an organization. We talk about how to be a remarkable leader and how you can develop them. And welcome to a very different phone calls with clever people because today the clever person is the host of this fantastic podcast, Shane Hatton himself. How are you, mate? Rowan, thank you so much for this. Um, You were the very, very first clever person that I called when we started this show. It actually started as a LinkedIn live series and you were the first person that I tested the technology with and was kind of working it out as we were going along. So to have you come back and close the loop on this, so to speak, is uh, is really cool. I'm, I'm delighted because uh, not only I, but many people in your world actually do believe that you are a clever person and you should be on one of your own phone calls. <laughs> so I think that's a really good place for us to close out this year. So as the way that we love to do this, I want to know the three fast facts on Shane Michael Hatton. So where were you born? Uh, what was your first job and what are you doing now? So take us through that so we understand you just a little bit more. It's always funny. I always start the show with these three fast facts. And whenever I go back and edit the podcast, I always think to myself, I would love to kind of collate with all these stories of first jobs and locations because it's always really fascinating. Um, my, I was born in Bundaberg. Uh, up in Queensland. Uh, I moved quite quickly to Alice Springs and then uh, spent five years in the Northern Territory before moving back to Bundaberg and spent most of my kind of early life there. Uh, My first job, I would say it was an illegal job because it was pretty much a cash in hand job. I went down to my local fruit market. I would have been 11 years old and they basically said, we'll pay you $20 a week, which was incredible at the time. And all I had to do was go down every day and just sweep and mop their floors. Uh, So that was my first um, probably illegal job. My first paid job was working at McDonald's. um, And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I had um, a McDonald's green visor that I wore outside of work because it was like, it was a status symbol at the time. Um, But what I do now, I, I essentially have a really incredible opportunity to work with leaders and organizations to essentially help them close that leadership gap that often exists between their executive leadership teams and their people leaders. And so I do that in a number of different ways as a speaker, a coach, um, and probably some people know uh, the book that I wrote, which was uh, Lead the Room. Well, that see, that's interesting because the very first thing I was going to uh, mention after hearing the fact that you lived in Alice Springs, which I didn't <laughs> know, Bundaberg I knew, and uh, was that you've actually developed a lot of your work off the back of the success of Lead the Room. It's an award-winning book. These are things that just so for people listening, <laughs> this is the opportunity where people like me get to brag about people like Shane because you 
usually it's the other way around and he's uh he's heroing the other person on the uh on the conversation but your book's an award-winning book and you've actually developed uh, it quite a bit in your thinking particularly over the course of this year it's been a turbulent year for the world not just a turbulent year for leaders and you've been noticing a number of things that have developed off the back of lead the room. It's more than a communication book. It's a book about leadership. And as you're having those conversations with clients and people, you're seeing even more of perhaps the tensions and the stresses and you're now calling it the leadership gap. So just take us through that. What are you seeing and Mm. how does it play out? And what's this year done to that gap in the good, bad and ugly? You know, it's interesting when, when I wrote lead the room and I I showed it to a few people before it was published, um, I kept saying to people, I wrote, I I wrote this book and it's, and it's a communication book. And the feedback that I kept getting from people was, you've got to stop calling it a communication book. Uh, You've got to start calling it a leadership book. And I was like, yeah, but it's a, it's a book about communication and leadership. And they're like, no, like it's a book about leadership. Um, you know, it, it, it talks about public speaking. Yeah. But it comes through the lens of, of character and integrity. And they're like, what, what public speaking book talks about character and integrity and reputation and credibility? And they're like, no, 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 it's a leadership book. And funnily enough, Lead the Room, the book, actually didn't start as just being that one element of communication. When I first started my practice a few years ago, Um, I started a program because I was engaged with an organization and they came to me and said, we've got these incredible people leaders in our organization, but when it comes time to recruit for our executive teams, the caliber or the standard of our leaders that are applying for those jobs, it's just not where we need it to be. And so what often happens is we go external and we recruit external and we bring people in. And so what ends up happening is our culture ends up getting diluted. We bring new people into the organization. We lose people uh, from the organization because they don't see that chance for career progression. They say, we've got to do something to kind of close this gap because it's just too big for them to make that leap. And I just kind of took a step back and go, okay, well, what would it take to elevate those people leaders and to try and close that gap. And it kind of caused us to reflect on like, what are the the places and what are the capabilities and what are things that we might need to do to develop those leaders? So what I actually came up with was lead the room and lead the room was actually not just one program, it was three. It was about how we develop leaders to, I guess, communicate more uh, and communicate better collectively. It was also about how they communicate individually and it was also about how they communicate culturally. And so those three programs together are called Lead the Room and I affectionately labeled them the conference room, the meeting room, the lunch room. And so it was a three-part program. So when I sat down to write the book, Lead the Room, my goal was to actually write all three of those together. And when I finished the first one, I went, there's way too much here to do three books in one. So I just converted to one book and that ultimately became Lead the Room. That's amazing. I, I mean, you've said a couple of things in there that I think I really want people to understand. Firstly, how do ideas develop and how do you actually become a little bit more confident that your ideas are actually helping people? And what Shane's just described is an excellent example of that. So if you're listening to this, start off with an idea, solve a problem and then navigate your way through it. But then you you just bounced quite effortlessly between those two pallets there. So that conference room, meeting room, lunch room, collectively, individually, culturally, you're, you're seeing that mm. and then seeing it play out in workplaces all over. So at a, at a practical level in the workplace, talking to clients, people giving you feedback, the people you work with, what are they saying about the tensions? What are they saying about the problems that are being experienced because the things that you're bringing to teams and executive teams 
are not there and they're feeling those frustrations or they're, they're missing each other, not just in the night, but in the day yeah. uh, there's, you know, what's going on? How, how, how would I know that I need what you're talking about? When I'm talking to people, there's a progression that I hear and it's not industry specific because I work across a number of industries, not just particular one particular area. Um, it's, it's everywhere I go, there's this progression and it starts in the bottom of the organization and it starts with their frontline workers. It's their people, their team members. And what happens is there there's issues. There's always issues because wherever people are working, we, there's issues, right? So there's people issues. And what ends up happening is those people issues ultimately create people leader issues. And so the people leader has to step in, whether it's conflict, whether it's, you know, a whole range of cultural issues that could come up. The people leader steps in and goes, I'm not sure that I know how to deal with this. And for good reason, probably because at one point they were a peer to those people or they've been really technically proficient in their job and then they've been promoted to leadership and then all of a sudden they're just learning and they're figuring out how to be a leader. And so they go, I'm not, I've never had to deal with this before and now I'm becoming the mediator of people problems. And so their natural response is to go, I need some help here. And so what they'll often do is they'll go to the the business partner in the organization from the HR team and go, hey, could you help uh, me mediate and deal with this problem? Now, you've got a business partner who's being stretched and and kind of pulled in all of their their capacity. And they're going, I just, they've got more problems that they have to deal with than what they can actually handle. And so what do they do? Well, they go to their oversight, which is often the HR manager. And then the same process happens. The HR manager is dealing with these escalating issues. And all of a sudden you've got these things that could have been helped and handled at a lower level and now getting dealt with, with kind of more senior leaders. And now all of a sudden you've got a senior executive leader who needs to be strategic, who needs to move big pieces of work forward, who needs to be working on the business rather than in the business, all of these kind of really important areas who get sucked down into the transactional nature of the organization. And they're dealing with things that should have been handled at a people leader level. And as a result of that, they're sitting there going, I feel like I show up to work every day and my job is 90% fighting fires. And I go home at the end of the day smelling like smoke. See, this is a, a really interesting situation because I feel like you're describing so many teams and organizations. And I, I reckon at one level, we can look at that situation and say, yep, true of me some of the time, true of me most of the time, true of me every now and then. We'll we'll sit on a continuum somewhere. What I reckon is really artful, and I want to hear you talk about this, is how do we work out where the problem lies? Now, I know you're talking about it in the context of the leadership gap. So you've got a solution. But again, take me back to the conference room, the meeting room, the lunch room. Yeah. How do I work out where the problem is? Because if I'm I'm an executive, I might see it a certain way. If I'm a people leader, I might see it a certain way. If I'm a frontline worker, I might see it a certain way. Yeah. Uh, I just want to hear your thoughts and insights on that. Yeah, really good question. Where is leadership happening in your organization? You know, what, what might you say to that? So people who are listening to this, if I said, you know, where's leadership happening? And the general response, like people would typically just jump straight to, well, you know, leadership happens everywhere, right? So you're always a leader. You don't get to turn leadership on, turn leadership off. And I go, okay, so like leadership would be situational. And you go, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. You, you're a leader, whether you're seen or unseen, you're, you're a leader. And, and I know the second question that I would ask them is go, okay, so if you were to take me into your organization, and you were going to be the tour guide for me and you were going to tour me through your organization. You were going to show me where leadership was happening. Well, where would you take me? 
And that I think that opens up a really different question because now we've got to be really specific. Rather than just being situational, now it's more geographical and we've got to be able to observe some certain things. And so I would say to people, if we were to look through the windows of your organization, what windows would we, would we look through? And then when we observe, what would we be looking for and what stories would it tell us about the capability of leadership within your organization? And people, most of the time that I talk to just go, well, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know where I would go or what I would do. And they go, what would you do? And that's where kind of originally this program started. And I went, you know what? If I could just pick three places, I would go into your conference room. And the conference room is a metaphorical space, but it's that space where we meet collectively. So it's your team meetings, it's your town halls, it's whenever your leadership are gathering people collectively. And what I would be observing or the stories that I'd be looking for is like, how do they lead collectively? Like when they communicate, how are they building trust? How are they engaging with people? Um, are they vulnerable? Do they, do, they, do they tell stories? Do they really connect with the hearts and minds of the people? And I would observe that. And then I'll go, okay, well, now let's look through the window of your individual meetings. And I would go, are your leaders coach-like? Do they know how to develop and enhance the performance of their team? Are they the problem solver of their team? Or do they know how to t- create teams of problem solvers? And I would go, how are they leading individually? And I said, the third space that I'd look through is I would walk through the hallways of your organization. I'd walk through the lunchrooms. And it's that place where people kind of let their guard down and what I would be looking for is who are people when nobody's watching? What are the internal conversations that are happening behind closed doors? And what does that tell us about how a leader leads culturally? Because I think culturally, um, our culture's felt throughout the organization. It's not just kind of the thing that's written on the, you know, on the walls of our organization. It's what we're actually feeling as we walk through it. And I go, those are the spaces that I would be observing. And I feel like I would learn so much about the capability of the leaders. Okay. I want to go another level down. I'm this because as you were starting to talk about some of these, I was thinking about letting you do that in my organization and thinking, yeah, not always. <laughs> <laughs> so drop me down another level because I think this creates good discomfort. It, it creates the sense of, all right, what did it, what does it take for us as an executive team and a people leader group to come together, if we recognize the gap and actually have the conversation to find out what's really going on. So again, teach me, treat me like I'm a client. What do I experience? And how do you navigate me through that vulnerability and discomfort? Yeah, I think it's always going to be, it's going to feel uncomfortable because I'm not sure that there are people who've, who've really mastered all of these areas well like and i think there's elements of it that we do you know some of it subconsciously some of it intentionally um, but there's always areas where we can enhance this more and i mean i talk to people who have been in leadership for decades and i go when was the last time you had a coaching conversation with one of your team members and they go oh it's just it takes too much time and 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 they go i i just i know i need to do more but i haven't um and i think when, when we do this well we've got a culture or we've got an organization where people are solving more problems than they create it. When we're, when we're doing these, these capabilities, well, like we're, we're, we're dealing less with transactional problem solving and we're actually creating environments where people know how to solve their problems. I reckon because we're um, enhancing and developing people internally, we do less external recruitment um, and we retain more people in the process of that. So our culture gets stronger rather than feeling like it's getting diluted. 
So again, like if we're continually bringing and turning people over and our culture feel like it feels like it's getting weaker, we're dealing with problems um, consistently, then it's a, it's a sign that we need to make some changes. Or what we're seeing is individual pockets of success rather than collective success. So we might have outstanding teams and then really dysfunctional teams rather than collectively as an organization, we've got remarkable people. It's a little bit like everything. One of the conversations I often have with people is, can you tap into the feeling that you had when you did something for the first time? Mm. And a lot of people have forgotten that because, because our psychology, our human psychology is actually driven towards safety. For whatever reason, uh, most of us, I think, work in environments where we try and stay safe. And I always tell the story of moving from Victoria to New South Wales and switching from AFL to rugby union and remembering as a 10-year-old why you couldn't throw a ball forward and my mum gave me brown shots instead of black shorts, give me a break, this was the 80s, and this, <laughs> all these sorts of things. And what I'm hearing is we need to tap into that feeling of we're going to be doing some things for the first time. We're going to be discovering some things for the first time. But if we do the disciplines, if we do the drills, if we learn the mindsets and the lessons, if we shift our beliefs, if we up our capability, then we will be able to navigate through this. What's your view on that? Someone said it on a podcast that we were doing recently. They said, no one wants to hear that their baby's ugly. And that, that idea that nobody wants to hear that if you're a leader within organizations, um, especially at a senior leader, no, you don't want to hear that, you know, your people leaders aren't that good. Well, you don't want to hear that you as a leader aren't performing at the, the capability that you should be performing or that you could be performing. And so that desire to not want to sit with that discomfort causes us to do good leadership rather than remarkable leadership. And I think there's a distinction. I reckon remarkable leaders are the ones that you talk about and you remember. I remember when I was younger, I had this goal in my life and the the one goal in my life was to get into as many wedding speeches as I could, not to deliver the speeches, but be the kind of person that people would talk about in their wedding speeches. And that's the kind of leader that I, I think of when I think about remarkable leaders. They're the kind of leader that when, when you get asked in those, you know, webinars that you're in, someone's like, who's one person that's inspired you? Or who's one person, one leader that you just, you know, extremely grateful for? Like, what would it look like and what would it take to be that kind of leader that people talk about? And I mean, people who are listening to now to, to this now, if you reflect on like that one manager that you had somewhere in your career, that change the trajectory of your career there's probably one person that comes to mind and like how do we fill your organization with people like that and they're so critical i think and again you make this distinction between the idea of good and remarkable and i really appreciate the aspirational nature of that but there's a deeper conviction for you you're yeah. actually saying don't back away from this being true of us as an organization we want to be remarkable, memorable, have an impact, be those people that people talk about. And then you, and we've talked about this, you know, we, we, we toss over ideas and have conversations with a lot of different things, but you talk about what actually creates the gap and yeah. you talk about the difference between the technical leader and the people leader. And I want you to start there and then we'll pick up the idea of beliefs and capability, but you're not talking about technical leadership. You're actually talking about something else. So just lead us down that path. Yeah. Cause when people think about what's required to be a leader, 
we think it's it's high technical capability. And when we're talking to leaders and going, tell me about the people in your organization, when we, when we describe their leaders, they're there for one of a couple of reasons. The first reason they're in a senior leadership, leadership position is that they're really good at their job. And it makes sense. Like you need to be good at your job. You need to be good at what you do um, if you're going to last in that, in that kind of space. Or they're there because they're the last one standing and everybody else is gone and they've kind of by default been elevated to this leadership position. So they're there because they're good at their job. And so the danger is that you get promoted because you're good at your job and your affirmation and your reward comes from being good at your job. But now your job is to help others get good at their job. And so that's why you find team leaders slip into this problem solver mode rather than creating problem solvers. So people go, well, you know, people come to me because I'm the expert and go, okay, so what could you do to help build them and develop them as experts? And they go, yeah, but like, but then what would I do? What's my role? Like your job, your, that is your job. Like your job is to develop these people. So there's the technical capability, but there's also the leadership capabilities. And it's going, how do I step out of the technical capability into those three spaces that we talked about? How do I inspire people and mobilize people collectively? How do I coach people individually? And how do I lead and strengthen the culture culturally so that we create environments where people can really thrive in their work? And I reckon there's, if we were to put them in this scale, there's this idea that, you know, people who like they're technically capable, but they're just not like they're in terms of the energy and the culture that they bring, they're not quite there yet. And I I describe them as a bit like they're just complicated. So they're really good at their job, but they're complicated. And so I kind of describe them as the headache people. They just give you headaches consistently. It's like, you're really good at your job and I can't get rid of you, but you're just complicated. And then there's the other side of it, which I describe as heartache people. And they're the people who you know, they're, they're just like, the, they bring an incredible amount of energy and life and culture to the team, but their technical skills and their leadership skills are just not where they need to be. So they're like high potential people, but they're not high performance people. And then you've got other people who are high performance people, but they're just complicated in the process. And so I have this kind of expression of going, how do we help your people be a little more Coldplay and a little less Kanye? Which is this idea that like, how do we help your people become uncomplicated, remarkable, talented people versus people who've got, you know, a lot of skills, but just keep causing problems. And I reckon when you can get that right, that creates this incredible energy in an organization. Yeah, I think there's no doubt. I love the, uh, sign me up for Coldplay any day. Absolute fan. Uh, then there's no doubt that there's a conversation that will never go away. I think, you know, for as long as we've got people, for as long as we've got the gap, for as long as we've got people development and people leaders development as a priority, we, uh, we go to work to do our job. And we do our job and we do our job well, and we're given more responsibility and people report to us. And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and we've got two jobs, Yeah, the job and the job of a leader. And, uh, and you and I know that we talk about this all the time in our, in our work. And it's actually about helping people do that. Yeah. One of the things we talk about um, that I wrote a white paper on was this idea of, um, of passenger to pilot. And I go, you can be a gold class, platinum, diamond, whatever it is, status flyer and know everything that's required to take a, a, a flight path from one location to another. It is a completely different story when we put you behind the controls of the plane. And it's the same for people. Like when you go from being a team member where you're a person on the plane to the leader of the team where you're the person flying the plane, there is a different capability that's required to make that leap. 
and it's a significant capability too. And so you you bring this down. So just to want to get practical around yeah. the gap and how we understand it and how we close it. You really bring it down to these two big ideas of beliefs and capabilities. So yeah. take us through that. And obviously with any model, there's more, you know, we, <laughs> we say in our world, you know, models are useful till they're not, but this is actually really, really good, a really good way of thinking about it. So take us through it. Yeah, I reckon we've touched on one of them, which is capability. And when we talk about capability, we're not talking technical capability. We're talking about leadership capability. It's that second um, area of capability that you get when you're behind the controls of the plane, right? So we've kind of touched on that idea that uh, we need people who, who know how to lead people and who can operate in the leadership role. One of the things I find is you get people who know how to do this well. They know how to lead well. But for some reason, they sabotage themselves. We describe it regularly as a lack of confidence. And when I was originally looking at this kind of pulling this model together, my brain went straight to, okay, what we need is leaders who are confident and capable. And I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And I remember I was having a conversation um, with someone and they said to me, I'm not sure that confidence is the real issue here. And I went, okay, let's think about this a bit more. And earlier in the podcast, in Phone Calls with Clever People, I was having a conversation with Cameron Schwab and he had this conversation about beliefs. And it took me back to my days at university. So I'm a trained counselor and I go, it's like the dots connected between those two places. And I went, you're right. Confidence was never an issue I dealt with with people. For me, this thing that sat below the surface of confidence was always a belief. And it was a dysfunctional belief at some kind of core level. And I went, okay, this is not a confidence issue. Confidence is a symptom. Confidence is a fruit. The root of this real issue is a belief and it's a dysfunctional belief at that. And so I kind of coined this phrase, which is this idea that people will rise to their standard of belief. If you've got dysfunctional beliefs, you'll be a dysfunctional leader. Uh, if you've got helpful beliefs, you'll be a more helpful leader. So people rise to their standard of their belief, but they can only deliver to the threshold of their capability. So I can have all the belief in the world, but not have the capability to lead and it's not going to help me. I can have all the capability in the world, but I'll sabotage myself if I don't have the belief. And so I kind of break them down. I go, if you've got belief, but no capability, I, I describe them as the learners in the organization because they're full of energy. They're full of excitement, but they often compensate with learning. So when you, when you kind of go, hey, could you do this? And like, oh, you know, I don't know how to do that. I'm still learning. And they're consistently making mistakes and they kind of, they lean towards, oh, I'm still learning. And at some point you've got to actually deliver, not just be high potential. You need to move from potential to performance. And so we've got to take people on that journey. But on the flip side of that, you've got other people, they compensate and I call them the workers, they compensate with their work. So rather than, you know, because they lack belief, they lean on what they know. And so they compensate with work. But I reckon remarkable leaders have both uh, helpful beliefs, things that support their leadership. And they've also got high capability and leadership capability. I reckon those two are a powerful combo. I think there's so much in this. And I know that we're uh, talking about having a part two to this conversation, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the two ways this plays out. Because as you were describing it to me, I'm... I, I, this the imagery around what actually happens in me as a people leader and then what happens through me as a people leader. So sort of the iceberg idea of there's the bits I don't see and then the bits I do see. Often in the workplace, 
the bits that trip me up, the bits that cause me to stumble are not necessarily the bits that everyone sees. They're the bits that are going on inside me about my belief systems or my, yeah. my, my wiring or whatever it is that I think is true with the conversation that Dave and Sharon are having at the water cooler <laughs> in a virtual zoom room somewhere in another place. You know, this is just unpack that in me and through me kind of piece a little bit. Yeah. Right. I reckon one of my favorite sayings is actually one you say, and it's that idea that how we're wired is how we lead. And, and I, I reckon that concept, if people can get that, is a really transformational concept. And you and I, I think at one stage, we were throwing around this idea of inside-out leadership. We were going to run a program together and we were talking about like leadership is both in inner world and outer world. Um, sounds like, yeah, we should. <laughs> it sounds like we should. But you know what's funny is I've had conversations with people and I often refer to it as the backstage and front stage of leadership. It's like we all want the front stage of leadership. We want to be on the platform. We want to be in the spotlight. We want to be the, you know, the inspiring leader. But everything that happens front stage is underpinned by everything that's going on backstage. And the amount of people that I talk to who go, yeah, character, values, integrity, yeah, it's all important. But like, teach me more about the, you know, the, the on the job training. Teach me the stuff that I can put into practice. And I go, yeah, we can do that. But what sits behind the screen, what sits behind the curtain is all the things that are going to sustain you in that journey. Um, so you, you're, you're exactly right. This is not just a outer world experience. It's going, okay, how do I get the inner world working right too? And I think for people that are listening to this, we're going, the on-ramp is going to be a couple of different things. So the on-ramp is going to be, oh, that's why. I actually don't believe I should be an executive. Oh, what do I do now? Yeah. Oh, that's it. I'm not sure I can actually do the job I've just been promoted to. It's these sorts of things that are, as our listeners are unpacking this together, as you were sharing this, I'm going, oh, that's going to interface with me and interface with listeners and people and clients in very real ways. And this whole idea of, input succeeding outputs becomes a really important part of it. So let's land this part of our conversation with some how to's. If, if I said, give me a handful, three, four, five, how do I begin the process of closing the gap? What do you expect that I can and ought to do? You know, what's interesting. I reckon it's going to sound really simple, but it's actually quite challenging. And I reckon the first thing we need to do is, is first and foremost, recognize that there is a gap. And, and for some people, that's going to be easy. Uh, some people will go, yeah, I can see it, that it's there. Other people, they're like, I'm not sure that it really exists in our organization. And so what I would say is to, to take a wander through the metaphorical spaces in your organization and go, okay, let's look at our executive leaders and let's look at our people leaders. Let's look at leadership within our organization and go, when they, when they get up to speak and they engage with our people, do people lean in and do they engage with them? Do they know how to like grab their thinking and connect with hearts and minds? Can they really do that? Okay, if they can, great. Let's look at our individual meetings. You know, are our leaders coaches or are they bosses? Are they managers? Or are they actually developing the people in their team? And then let's go just for an exploration around the hallways and let's actually look at the culture of our organization and not just get a sense of how it feels. Let's actually ask people to articulate elements of our culture and see if there's alignment in what people say. 
Because it's not just about do I have a culture that what I think is the culture. I remember speaking to someone recently, they said, oh, we haven't really got a culture in our organization. We're still establishing it. And I go, well, no, I'm not sure you're still establishing it. I think you already have a culture, but it's by default rather than by design. And so, um, again, like would, would everybody describe our culture in the same way or is it just being described in one way by leadership? I think if we can start asking these questions, it'll raise our, 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 our level of awareness. And, and I think you and I both know sometimes the best and most practical start is just to recognize what's going on. And now we recognize what's going on. Now let's actually just have some honest conversations with each other and create some safe spaces to have honest conversation about, okay, how do you feel about being in leadership? Like, and, and what do we believe here? And what do we reward here? And what do we recognize? And start to identify whether they're beliefs that are really helpful for us or not. I mean, I was having a conversation with someone the other night and they were telling us about this experience they had where they had grown up their entire life thinking one thing. And they didn't know until they had turned 20 that this thing wasn't a reality. And they went and had a conversation with someone and brought it up like it was normal. The other person was mortified. And they go, how do you not know this? And they're like, well, I've just always believed that. And so often beliefs, they're these things that sit below the surface that we, unless we have honest conversation and create spaces for conversation, we'll never know whether there's dysfunctional beliefs in there. So again, it, it sounds at a really kind of more abstract level, but really we, until we're aware of some of these things, we can't close a gap that we don't know exists. No, I really hear you on the abstract and I think it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing I'm hearing is the subtext of the commitment by executives and people leaders to actually solve it, yeah. close the gap and work together to see capability and belief increase at the same time. Yeah. I mean, Gallup has this great um, piece of research around, you know, they would say, they say one in 10 people have the natural talent to lead, which is quite confronting really when you think about it. But they say two out of 10 could lead if they had the opportunity to be developed. And I go, how do we take that one person who's naturally great and help them become remarkable? And how do we take two more of those people and actually help them be remarkable as well? Someone joked and they were like, you know, uh, you know, it's all about good to great. And I'm going, well, how do we get from great to remarkable? Like, how do we get to that space where, you know, you go home at the end of the day not reeking of smoke because you spent the day putting out fires that people could have solved where you go home at the end of the day going, you know what? I, I moved big pieces of work forward because I wasn't, yeah, my focus wasn't being pulled away. How do I go home at the end of the day and go, that was a good day at work. I feel more energized when I came home because I made the impact that I wanted to have and that I needed to have in the organization. And then one day, how do you reflect back and go, gee, like that one leader or that person made such a big difference on my career and changed the trajectory of like, if we can create more leaders like that, I reckon that's the kind of organization I'd want to be part of. And I think Shane Hatton, that is remarkable leadership. Well done. And thanks for this conversation, you clever person. Rowan, thanks so much. Always a great opportunity to chat with you. And I always love the way that you facilitate really good conversations. I love it, mate. Well done. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.